I was just standing there thinking about this psalm again and uh, going through it in my mind. And you'll understand the reason for this in a few moments. As I read it to you, and then I'm going to set it in context, you'll realize what a lame reading this is going to be. So I just want you to follow with me. It's a fantastic part of scripture. It's full of thrill and excitement. And then in a few moments I'll share the context and uh, you'll realize what I'm saying. But Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name, proclaim his salvation day after day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him, strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established, it cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. They will sing before the Lord. For he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his truth. This record of the psalm, as we have it in the book of Psalms, in Psalm 96, is not the first time this psalm occurs in the pages of Scripture. It is part of a great anthem of worship that was specifically and specially composed for one of the most amazing historical events that ever took place in the Old Testament and in the life of the people of Israel of old. It was written by King David to celebrate the bringing up of the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom where, in a sense, the Ark had been in exile for a long period of time up to Jerusalem and to its more permanent resting place. And you'll find the whole event there in 1 Chronicles 16 and thereabout. And as part of a much longer paean of praise that David composed, Psalm 96 is lifted out of that and put in the book of Psalms as an individual item of praise. And just imagine the setting. As the Ark of God, this great symbol of the presence of God among his covenant people, and it's been away there in the backwaters, if you like, in the, in the homestead of this uh, Obed-Edom, and now it's being brought up to Jerusalem where it will be the focal point of the worship of the covenant people of God. And there are thousands and thousands of people in procession. There are hundreds of priests robed in white. There are massive choirs and an orchestra with ram's horns and trumpets and cymbals and lyres and harps. The sort of occasion that would literally make the hairs on the back of your head stand on end. That's why I said my reading of it was so lame. Just imagine being in that context with this great cacophony of instruments and the praises and the exaltation of all the people as they escorted the ark up to Jerusalem. This is the occasion on which, which David was so carried away in his praise to God that he danced and, uh, and just reveled in, in God's appointing and anointing of him as the king of, day, of Israel at this particular time. So here's this psalm, there's a great celebration and worship, but it is also by its very nature and content a psalm of great missionary statement. 
Because the great theme of this psalm is the coming universal reign of Jesus Christ. Here is a prophetic psalm that looks ahead to the day when Jesus will reign and be seen to reign and acknowledged in his reign by all the nations of the earth. Sing to the Lord, it begins a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. And I think there's a prophetic link forward to Revelation. And it was great at the beginning of the service to begin the theme there this evening. That great theme around the the, the throne of heaven when all the redeemed of the Lord will be there. From every nation, tribe, people and language. And as Revelation says, we'll be singing a new song. A new song of praise to our God. The song that speaks about the worthiness of Jesus to to receive the praise of all the peoples. Because he was crucified and slain and was raised again. So here's a psalm that is full of missionary vision. And I want to ask ourselves a question now. What is mission? We talk about mission. We have a mission weekend, a mission focus and all the rest of it. What is mission? And we might come up with all sorts of good and legitimate definitions and interpretations. But here's the most fundamental one of all. Mission is telling men and women how great God is. That's as simple as it gets. Look what we're told in verse 3. Declare his glory among the nations. That is a synonym for mission. You see, mission is not first and foremost about going and seeing converts. It's not first and foremost about going and planting churches. It's not first and foremost about going and training up Bible teachers. Those are a resulting of the primary action of mission, which is to go and tell men and women, wherever they are on the face of the earth, God is great. Declare the glory of God to the nations of the earth. That's why we chose and sang, Jesus, the name high over all. Because that is what mission is all about. It is about saying to men and women, wherever they are, behold the Lamb. It's focusing men and women's attention on the one who is the center of the attention of the whole angelic population. And John Piper is absolutely right when John Piper says there is a lack of passion and a lack of enthusiasm for mission simply because there is a lack of passion and enthusiasm for God. One thing you'll discover, you can trace this back through history, and you can trace it as you look around the world today, that where the church is younger, where the church is vibrant, where the church is, is, is growing, where there's a real touch of God upon the church, almost instinctively there is a passion for mission, because people are passionate about God. And we in this part of the world, in Western Europe, have become so comfortable, so respectable, so used to being Christian people, that we've lost our passion and our excitement for God. And that's why we've lost our passion and excitement for mission. I sometimes ask myself and challenge other people, why do you think mission is so low down the agenda for most Christian people in the West today? And I believe that's the case. And I think the reason is simple. We just don't believe certain things that we, use, we ought to believe. It would seem that most or many so-called Christian people today, for instance, no longer believe in the uniqueness of Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation. We've given in to the pluralistic, politically correct world in which we live. And we're embarrassed and ashamed to actually say that we believe in exclusive gospel. And unless a man or woman is born again of the Spirit of God, has a personal, conscious experience of Jesus Christ, a new birth through his death on the cross, then he cannot or she cannot be saved. That all roads do not lead to God. We do not call God by one name and the Muslims call him by another name and somebody else calls him by another name. We believe in the one true, only living God. 
But because we no longer believe that in our bones today, we don't have the conviction to go and get involved in evangelism and mission. Many Christian people today question, if not thoroughly, absolutely deny the reality of judgment and the fact that there awaits those who die outside of Christ, a conscious, Christless eternity that the Bible calls hell. We've argued it away. We've sanitized it. And yet the person in the Bible who speaks more about hell than anyone else is Jesus. Jesus believes in hell. In fact, so firmly does he believe in it that he gave his life on the cross to stop you and me going there. But because so many of us have given up on hell, we've sold out on hell, then there's nothing really to go and warn people about. So we don't do mission. We don't do evangelism. Many of us have given up on the biblical truth of those who die never having heard of Christ, the unreached as we sometimes call them, are already lost. They're not waiting to be lost, they are lost. And so there are all sorts of mealy-mouthed theologians going around telling us that, well, actually they may be okay because they were quite sincere in what they did believe and all the rest of that nonsense. And so we'd rather believe that because it's more comfortable, it's more attractive. And so we've given up on mission. We've given up on evangelism. And here's the fourth reason. We've given up on evangelism and mission because we don't believe in God any longer. Oh, we believe in gods, and we believe in a God. But by the way, most of us live, and by the way, most of us get involved in mission evangelism. We don't believe in the God of the Bible. He no longer fires us, he no longer excites us, he no longer thrills our souls. Because if he did... We'd be queuing up to get involved in door-to-door work. We'd be queuing up to tell our, our workmates and our neighbors about the Lord Jesus Christ. We'd be queuing up to go to other parts of the world and tell people about Jesus. Because the soul that is in love with Jesus must tell somebody else. You know, it's like in human nature. We notice right from the early years of children that uh, the way God has made us is that when something fantastic, something exciting, something wonderful happens to us, the most instinctive reflex action in the world is to go and tell somebody else. The one glorious, startling exception is anything to do with the gospel, anything to do with Christianity. Then it has the opposite effect. It pours superglue into our mouths. It pours lead into our feet. And we squirm up with embarrassment. And I believe that what we need to do is to re- ask God to re-excite our hearts with an all-glorious passion for Jesus. I may have told you this before, and forgive me, but uh, I remember many years ago, in my early days of this particular ministry, I was preaching in another church in Edinburgh, and I remember standing on the door, st- on the door outside afterwards, talking to people as they went out, and this little lad of five or six uh, came up, and uh, I must have been talking to his parents or something, and uh, this little lad was more or less standing on my toes, and his, his, his eyes were boring into my kneecaps. And then he, he, just, he just began to lift his eyes upwards, and he got to the sky level for him, and he said, wow, isn't he big? And so this little five-year-old, I was huge. But I've often gone back to that picture and thought, that's what I should be like before God. Why have I, in all my learning and education and sophistication and all the rest of it, why have I lost that childlike passion and enthusiasm and open-mouthed wonder when I come before God? Wow, isn't he big? And the world has crept in on my mind and, and dumbed down God and robbed me of so much of my joy and so much of my passion. 
And if I'm not passionate about God, if He no longer thrills me and fires me, why should I go and tell others what I'm not that excited about? My friends, the world out there is more excited about the sin they're involved in than you and I are about our God. And we go to them and tell them in a sort of half-hearted, half-baked way about Jesus, and they think, boy, I've got a better life than you guys have got. And the great weakness for mission today is that we've lost our passion, we've lost our enthusiasm, we've lost our excitement for God. And that's what this psalm is all about. It's trying to get God's people not to work up some sort of emotion, but to awaken their minds and their eyes again to the unspeakable glory of God, the passion for Christ, that will drive us out there to tell people about Jesus. So I want to share three things with you this evening. Three historical, unalterable truths about God that this psalm brings out, among many that I could have brought out, that I think this world needs to hear with freshness, with clarity, with boldness. Three reasons why you and I should be cheerful as Christians, but also why we should be involved in the great message of the mission. And it's this, first of all, because our God is the author of all creation. He is the author of all creation. Look at verse 4 and 5. See, the opening verse, I just a call to God's people to get out there, sing this great song to all the earth, declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous deeds among all peoples. Why? For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and glory are in His sanctuary. You see, the call of the gospel is an exclusive call to every man, woman, and child on, on the face of the earth to, stay so, to say to them, stop worshipping whatever you are worshipping and worship the only true living God because He is the Creator God. For all the gods of the nations are idols or little godlets, as one translator puts it, and there's a play on words in the Hebrew there, or as one writer puts it, they are the greatest nothings of all. All the gods of the nations are idols, but Jehovah, the Lord, made the heavens. Worship Him. He's the Creator God. Have you noticed why one of the fiercest attacks on biblical truth and on Christian conviction over past generations has been Satan's attack on the doctrine of creation? And my friends, you can't have your cake and eat it. If Genesis 1 to 3 is not a historical account of something that happened, then you have no reason to believe that anything else in the Bible is any more true. You can't say, well, historicity kicks in at chapter 11, or historicity kicks in at Isaiah, or historicity kicks in in Matthew or Luke. Who are you and I to make that decision? It kicks in in Genesis 1-1, or it doesn't kick in at all. And it's fundamental to everything else we believe in the Bible. If God didn't create the world, as the Bible tells us, it out of nothing then what confidence have I got to believe that he also sent his son to die on a cross? Perhaps that's also just a parable or a fable to help convey some truth to my mind. But you see, in undermining our confidence in the historical account of creation, Satan has robbed us of one of the most glorious, greatest demonstrations of the glory of God. Because it is in the heavens that God declares his glory. The heavens declare the glory of God. And anybody with a fathom of a brain, anybody with half an ounce of brain within their head, only has to open their eyes and look at the world around and say, wow, isn't he big? 
And the God who started with nothing spoke a word and everything we see came into being is a God worth telling other people about. Just think about the great work of creation for a moment. The God who created the sky and the atmosphere above the earth. The clouds that he hung in space. Clouds which can hold a hundred thousand tons of water and are suspended on nothing. Who could do that but God? He takes, he makes and forms the oceans and the dry land appears teeming with organic life in all its staggering variety and detail. He creates the heavenly bodies, the sun. The sun which is something like 333,000 times the mass of the earth. It could hold more than one million of our earths. He put every star in place and the Bible tells us that he knows every star by name and he holds it in its, in its movements. It's there because he is still in control. There are billions and billions and billions of them out there. Some of them so big that some of the stars we know about could hold 500 millions of the suns. And all this happened by accident. All this happened by chance. God populates the sea and the sky with all sorts of creatures and birds. And then the most phenomenal act of creation of all, God creates humankind in all its staggering detail and intricacy. One scientist said, the only proof I need of a creator is my thumb. There's enough evidence there to prove an intelligent being made me in all the detail. Do you know one cell in your body has as many working parts in it as a Boeing 747. And that happened by chance. It just came about in some primeval swamp. But don't dismiss any scientific idea behind evolution. It does prove one scientific truth. There is one born every minute. Because if you believe that, you can believe anything. I listen to a certain Lord Russell. I don't know who he was and I really care little who he was. By obviously what he believed. But this is what he says. In the face of all the evidence. Man's origin. His growth. His hopes. His fears. His loves and beliefs. Are but the outcome of accidental allocations of atoms. Next time you want to encourage somebody who's a bit down. <laughs> lost their self-worth and their self-esteem. Taking a battering in life. And as you're sitting at Starbucks giving a cup of coffee and trying to just boost their spirits, just remind them it doesn't matter, you're nothing more than an accidental allocation of atoms. An intelligent person not only believes that, but teaches us. See, why, why have I reminded you of some of these basic Sunday school level materials? It's this because we've lost our sense of the glory and wonder of our Creator God. We've allowed Satan to rob us of our conviction that everything we see around us came into being out of nothing because God, the living God, spoke a word and it happened. And if we can't get fired up about that to go and tell an unbelieving world what's staring them in the eyes, then there's really little hope for us. God is the creator God. Now this has massive implications. What's this got to do with mission? You hear me say, well, it's got to do with mission because it's part of declaring the glory of God. But listen to some of the implications of that. First of all, we are not accidental allocations 
of atoms. We are made in the image of God, intricately, individually, knitted together in our mother's wombs, in a unique design in God's head alone. And therefore you and I and every creature on the face of the earth, every human being, is intricately special and valuable to God. Every man, woman and child. It takes away every ground for racism or prejudice or euthanasia, or abortion, or any other sophisticated development that we've come up with in more recent years. Because we're made in the image of God. If we are but accidental allocations of atoms, we are no different than an ant. And if we step on one another, it doesn't really matter. But we're not. We're living beings. And the second implication is this, that because you and I and all human beings are made by God like this, then we are under His jurisdiction and accountable to Him. We cannot live as we choose. There is an eternal appraisal coming one day, my friends, when you and I have to give account of our lives, and God has all the right in the world to hold us to account because He made us. So we have to live. With accountability. We have to live with our eye on that future day when we will one day stand before God. And that's true of all men and women. And so we need to go to men and women wherever they are. Whether they're working on the shop floor with us here in Edinburgh. Or whether they're living in a shanty town in Nairobi. Or whether they're flying a a, a jumbo jet in Saudi Arabia. And we've got to say one day you've got to face your maker. You've got to answer to him why you've used your life and your resources in the way that you have. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it because he made it. And the third implication is this. Because God created the world, God is jealous and angry when his creation gives their worship to anybody else. You see, if we were but accidental allocations of atoms, if we simply somehow emerged from some primeval swamp, then we could choose who we're going to worship. Or we could choose not to worship anyone or anything at all. But we have not got that choice. God made us in his image. He put within us a natural instinct to give worship and praise and honor to him. To serve him all our lives. And then Satan through sin came and twisted that and diverted it. So we'll worship anything and anyone but the living God. We'll worship gods who are no gods. As the psalmist says, the greatest nothings of all. And we provoke God to righteous anger and jealousy. And so we have to go to the nations of the world. We have to go to the people who live next door to us. We have to go to the people who we work with. And say, stop it. Stop it. Worship God. He's the author of all creation. And we have to go to the world and declare the glory of the God who is the author of all creation. And that leads on to the second thing I want to draw your attention to from this wonderful psalm tonight is this. Not only is is he the author of all creation, but he is the object of true worship. Look at verses 6 to 9. It follows on. It's a natural secretary. And in a sense, we've touched on it very briefly already. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations. Ascribe... To the Lord, glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. I want you to notice, cast your eyes through those four verses we've just read and and notice, I've underlined them in my Bible, in those few verses, how many times is the name the Lord there or his or him? 
It's repetition upon repetition upon repetition as if to enforce the point. All true worship, all true praise has got to be given to the Lord. It's not anybody. You can't make up your mind, choose who you want to worship. True worship can only be given to this God, Jehovah God, the God who created the world and created you in his image. See, here is the development of one of the logical outworkings of the, of the previous point. God created us in his image. He made us as spiritual beings. That's what, it's part of what it means to be in the image of God. And although Satan and sin have twisted that and diverted the true worship of the true God to false worship of false gods, it doesn't alter the fact that we are created to worship him. Now, here is a crucial if contentious point in the world in which we live today. We're seeing it even in the CUs in some of our universities in our countries today. It was head of the news a day or two ago where many CUs here in Edinburgh itself are being uh, persecuted and ostracized because they're calling on people to hold an exclusive position on the gospel. And the world looks on in utter disbelief and says, you can't do that. You notice in this incredibly tolerant world in which we live in, you, you are to be, you're obliged to be tolerant of everything except evangelical Christianity. It is the one thing we're not allowed to be tolerant about. And the call to say to men and women, there's only one way in which you can give true worship, only one person to whom you can give your true worship, and the moment you stand up and say that and you put your head above the parapet, today you'll get shot at. And in this pluralistic, politically correct world, the idea of an exclusive faith, where there is one dogmatic truth, which must be espoused and all others rejected, is an anathema. And yet, my friends, that's precisely what God's Word says. That is precisely what God's Word says. You see, almost from the beginning, of the, certainly from the modern missionary movement, there's this, being, this great attack being on missionaries and missionary agencies to stop going into other parts of the world and, and disrupting the cultures. Stop going and interfering. As if the people that missionaries went to were living in little gardens of Eden without any problems. And what right have we got as Bible-believing Christians to go to people who follow this worship or practice that system of belief and say, you're wrong, we're right, stop doing what you're doing, follow our system of belief, worship our God, what right have you got to do that? And we have to say, we have the authority of God himself. Because God says, there is only one God to worship, and that's me. And I will not share my glory with another, and I will not tolerate the worship of other gods, whatever you may call them. And the God who created the earth and the God who made himself known in Jesus Christ is the only God to whom true worship can and must be brought. And my friends, we need to say this today with, with unashamed conviction and clarity and words almost of one syllable. That any on every other religion or system of belief which is not centered on God who became incarnate in Christ is a false Religion. It is a lie, it is a delusion of Satan to keep men and women from that which Satan knows is the only hope. And though this may be a hateful idea in the 21st century, it is nonetheless a biblical truth. You see, it's as simple as this, if Jehovah God made the heavens and the earth, 
then it is wrong and it is a sin to worship any other God. Indeed, I'd go stronger than that. It is equally wrong and a sin not to worship the living God. It's not only wrong to worship other gods, it's wrong not to worship this God, the true God, the God revealed in Scripture. And that is the greatest sin of humanity. The greatest sin of humanity is not the things that they've done, it's the, things that, it's the one thing they've not done. They've not given to God the honor and the praise and the worship and the service due to his name. And this is where mission comes right onto our own doorsteps and into our own living rooms and into our own hearts. Because the challenge I need to bring before you tonight is, who, what are you worshipping? And all of us in this building tonight, whether we call ourselves Christians or not, we are all worshippers. We are by nature worshippers. And I need to tell you tonight that if you are not worshipping the living God who became flesh in Christ Jesus and was taken and willingly smashed on a cross until the lifeblood drained out of his body as he bore the unspeakable horror of God's wrath and judgment on his body and then was laid in a tomb and three days later came back to life again by the power of God. If that's not the God that you are worshipping tonight and if you're not, or if you're not giving your worship to that God then I need to tell you tonight you are in mortal eternal danger. It's as simple as that. And it's not on my authority, it's on the authority of the God of this world. And it's because so many of us, even as Christians, have lost the heart conviction of that truth that we are no longer passionate about getting out there, telling people whom we work with, who live near to us, never mind on the other side of the earth. How can we tell them what we're not really sure about ourselves? Am I speaking to someone tonight who has to admit that they've lost their conviction about that? If you are not worshipping God, the God of the Bible exclusively, let me say this as simply, as plainly as I possibly can. If you are not worshipping the God of the Bible exclusively, you are not worshipping God. Therefore, you are not a Christian. Therefore, the Bible says you are lost. Now, there are enormous implications on this. There are implications for the millions of people who still live in the world who've never heard the name of Jesus. You know, despite the incredible advance of mission throughout the world, particularly over the last 200 years or so, something like 18 to 20%, depending on whose statistics you want to believe, something like 18 to 20% of the present population of this world has never heard the name of Jesus in a Christian context. I don't know about you, but that is just staggering. Here we are 2,000 years and more since Christ gave the Great Commission to the church. All he was doing there was summing up what God has been telling his church for hundreds and hundreds of years. And now, 2,000 years later on, despite all the advances we've had in technology and communication and transport and all the rest of it, all the huge resources in the church, 18 to 20%, nearly one in five of all the people on the face of the earth today had yet to hear of Jesus for the first time. And all we've just said about God is true of them because they're all worshipping. I don't want to suggest what they're worshipping tonight. They're worshipping a myriad of different things. But they're all wrong. They're all false because they're not giving their worship to the true living God. And we have to go to them. Someone's got to go. Will you go? Will you warn them? But you know, it's not just those who, who live in far-flung, remote, exotic places who may bow down sometimes to physical idols or to their ancestors or to the sun or the trees or whatever else. 
You and I live in a nation of idol worshippers. We live in a, in a nation, a society that is increasingly pagan. There are more people today worshipping at the cash till than in the pews. There are more people on a Saturday night worshipping at the lottery than there are putting money in the offering in the Lord's house on a Sunday. There are more known white witches in the UK than there are known preachers of the gospel. And we need to get Edinburgh, and we need to go to UK, and we need to go to Western Europe, and we need to say, stop worshipping what you're worshipping. Worship the living God. Give to God the worship that is due to His name. That's what mission is about. How can you do it if you don't really believe it yourself? How can you do it if you're not really excited by it yourself? We have to declare the glory of God, the God who is the author of all creation, the object of all true worship. And thirdly, and I found this most surprising when I first really engaged with this psalm, but I see the utter simple logic of it now. He is also the judge of all the earth. Look at the last four verses of this wonderful psalm. Say among the nations the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established, it cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea resound in all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. They will sing before the Lord. For He comes, He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His truth. There are two great interlocking, inseparable themes in these last few verses that you very rarely hear in the same sentence in the average vocabulary of the Western evangelical Christian today. And it's this, celebration and judgment. How can you put those two in the same sentence? You either have a celebration service or you have a hellfire damnation gospel preaching. You can't do the two together. And yet look at the picture with all its anthropomorphic language in these last verses. The psalmist is calling on the whole of the physical creation, not just human beings, the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in it, the fields, the trees of the forest, to sing, to give praise, because God is coming. What a wonderful celebration. It would make even that great throng that brought the ark of the covenant back to Jerusalem. That would look like a lame exercise. What's going to happen at the end of time? And the psalmist conscious of the whole of creation to celebrate worship. Why? Because God's coming to judge. He's coming to judge. You know what the world out there is longing to hear about? A God who's going to come and put things right. A God who's going to right wrongs. A God who's going to vindicate the righteous and punish and destroy the evildoer. And you know what we've done as Western evangelical Christians? In a false and vain attempt to try and make our message more palatable to the man in the street, we've stripped our message of the idea of judgment. We've stripped our message of the idea of justice. We've stripped our message of one who comes back and vindicates because people don't want to hear that. That's exactly what they want to hear. That's exactly what they want to hear. Because the non-Christian, just like the Christian, sits in front of their television screens and watches some terrible miscarriage of justice take place and, and cry out helplessly, who can put this right? Many non-Christians, just like Christians, can watch their television screens and see the appalling genocide going on in Darfur and say, can't anybody put this right? Who's going to stand up for the weak? Who's going to stand up for the oppressed? 
And we, who are the only people who know the answer to that question, are so embarrassed at talking about a God of judgment that we won't stand up and put our hands up. And the very thing that I believe makes our message palatable to the unchristian world, we have decided let's keep quiet about that. We don't want to offend people. So you can go to churches today where they won't talk about sin because they're so, so seeker-friendly they don't want to offend anybody who might come in their doors. So we play down the gospel. We water down the gospel. We lie, quite frankly. And I believe in my heart of hearts that far from making our message more attractive, we make it less attractive. See, just think about the original context it's not all that far, I have to say, and I don't say it's in a patronizing way today. It's from, from many African communities and situations I know. This is what C.S. Lewis wrote about this particular time when this psalm was written. The ancients lived in a world where judges usually needed to be bribed, and righteous judgment was exceedingly hard to come by, especially for weak, poor, or disadvantaged persons. And in such a climate, the disadvantaged did not fear judgment, but rather longed for it, because it meant a day when evil would be punished and those who did right would be vindicated. One of the things they say about in Africa is that you can get judgment and you can get justice as long as you've got the right paperwork. And by paperwork, they mean money. Before we point the finger too much, we may dress it up in other words, but we live in a society today that is increasingly corrupt, Allegedly, and I say that word very definitely, allegedly you can get honours in the House of Lords if you pay enough money. There are thousands of other examples. And human beings, because we're made in the image of God, because we're not accidental allocations of atoms, human beings long for somebody who'll come and put it all right. My friends, the Gospel tells us there is somebody coming. Jesus is coming. And he's not going to come back as a helpless baby lying in a manger, meek and mild. He's going to come back as the all-conquering King of kings and Lord of lords and all the military, arrogant, godless forces in the world as they gang up on him and, and accumulate all their weapons and their strength. Jesus will, by the breath of his mouth, he'll go and they'll be gone. He'll destroy them into eternal judgment for all time. And part of the new song, where this psalm began, where our worship tonight began, is not only, you are worthy for you died, but it's also, our Lord reigns. And you cannot sing the new song of heaven and keep out the element of judgment, and keep out the element of righteousness. It's part of the new song, don't miss the verses. But you see, many of us as Christians here in the West, we've sold out on that one. Our God is so spineless, so impotent, so benevolent, so cuddly, so full of senile dementia, that he's going to turn a blind eye to everything. And in the end, he'll accept anybody into his kingdom. Because he's too kind and generous to keep anybody out. And the very worst that will happen to people today is some sort of annihilation. But our Bible speaks about a God who is a consuming fire. A God who with the breath of his mouth will destroy his enemies. Send them into eternal damnation. A God who with all the knowledge and awareness that he has will pass sentence on every human being who has ever populated this earth. And based on their response to the message of the Lord Jesus Christ will determine their eternal destiny. It's as simple as that. The judge of all the earth 
and will do what is right. Now, I don't know about you, but that's the sort of judge I want to have confidence in. That's the sort of judge I want to go to a, a, a wicked, unrighteous, unjust, unfair world and say, hang on, guys. There's hope. There's hope. See, mission is about declaring the glory of God. The question I want to ask you this evening is, is how glorious is God to you? The word glory that's translated in our New Testament, in our, in our English language Bibles, is a mixture of, of uh, two old words, a Hebrew word and a, and a Greek word, which speak about the, the weightiness in the sense of the worthiness, the awesomeness of something. It's the word that's used in some of the Old Testament details of the, the vestments or the, the, the rituals or the, the uh, furnishings of the Old Testament tabernacle. It's the, it's the awesomeness, it's the reverence that's due to God because of who He is. And as one American writer has put it, we have robbed God of His weightiness. We have dumbed Him down. And so He's not really worth getting excited about. Declaring the glory of God? Well, it better be the God of the Bible because He's the only really glorious one. And if you've given in, if you've lost your passion, if you've lost your conviction about Bible truths, then I want to challenge you tonight on this Mission Sunday to ask God to rekindle that fire. I want you to ask God to forgive you for believing the lie of the devil rather than believing the truth of the Word of God. And ask God to so inflame your heart again with passion and love for Him that you will find yourself irresistibly talking to other people about Jesus. You don't have to get on a plane. Getting on a plane doesn't make you a missionary. Talking about Jesus to your neighbor makes you a missionary. Talking about Jesus to the person you work with makes you a missionary. But if I'm speaking to somebody tonight, and I'm convinced I am, who has never yet bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus, and you may have come to church all your lives, or this may be the very first time you've been in a Bible-preaching church, it doesn't really make any difference. If you've not yet bowed the knee to Jesus and accepted Him only as your Lord and your Savior and trusted in Him for what He did on the cross all those years ago, is the only hope for you. Otherwise, your sin will be held accountable to you. Then what better night of the year than on Missionary Sunday to make the greatest missionary event of all time apply in your life and then spend the rest of your life being a missionary to tell others what you have now discovered for yourself. Sing to the Lord a new song. Declare His glory among the nations. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let's pray.